0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, President of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, we're delighted to have uh, our listeners with us on this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, I I would uh, especially like to welcome uh, our guest, uh, Daniel Gross. Daniel, welcome.
1: My pleasure.
0: Um, uh, Daniel is a, a member of the board and distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Studies uh, in Brussels, an institution of which he was the director for quite a few years. 20 years. 20 years. Uh, so uh, really pleased to have you with us. And uh, also with us is Peter Rashish, a Senior Fellow and Director of the AICGS Geoeconomics Program. We've been spending the day uh, in a closed-door workshop talking about how the United States and Europe and Germany in particular uh, address the challenges that arise from China. Um, And so that's where I thought we would start uh, today. Uh, But Daniel, maybe to ask the fundamental question, what is the China challenge? Um, how,
1: How would you define it? I think for different countries, there are different China challenges. I think for the U.S. the China, China challenge goes much deeper because it threatens, of course, the position of the U.S. as number one in the world, uh, politically, technologically, militarily, from from many aspects. Uh, whereas for Europe, uh, the China challenge is much more limited. It's much more in the economic domain. And uh, it is perceived not only as a challenge, but also as an opportunity. Whereas as a visitor, one gets the impression that in the US, uh, one sees very little upside to the relationship with China, only many potential downsides. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one aspect which is uh, different between uh, Europe and the United States.
0: Now, to tease that out a little bit, uh, you, you mentioned that for the United States, it is a much deeper challenge. I, I would agree with that. But are you saying that uh, in Europe, the there is not the same perceived risk of China's um, you know, efforts to remake uh, in its image, um, not, not only the economic system, but uh, to influence global politics, uh, and in particular, to export its authoritarian model
1: in my first shot I emphasize the differences okay <laughs> there are also of course things which are very similar yeah I think on both sides of the Atlantic we agree on the say political challenge uh, on the challenge to our view of the rule of law mm-hmm. of human rights uh, and I think uh, on these aspects you see very similar evaluations of the threats uh, posed by China Perhaps what one sees a little bit less in Europe also is the idea that China would like to remake the world and its image. The perception in Europe is much more that the Chinese have their own, of course, uh, peculiarities. They have different values, a different political system. Uh, But uh, as far as at least we can tell, they don't try to export their system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just want to be able to... uh, Basically, dominate, <coughs> dominate. Of course, their own environment, right at home, right in Asia, and uh, they would like to be able to uh, participate in the world economy on their own terms, right, which are different from ours.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a multi-dimensional challenge. It is perceived in somewhat different ways in Europe and the United States. Although, in the on the big things, uh, we see um, see them similarly. So. How do we meet that challenge? And how much of that do we uh, should or must
1: we do together, in your view? There's of course the part which unites us. It's the part on the values, uh, on the rule of law, on the kind of political system that we find acceptable that we can deal with. Um, But we all know that uh, this is the the moral aspects has to deal with the real world, Mm -hmm. right? we have also economic and other constraints, um, and for Europe, uh, the economic uh, constraints and also the opportunities are or loom much larger than for the United States. Um, for example, uh, Europe uh, exports almost twice as much uh, manufacturers to the, to China than the US does. Right. Um, we have uh, very concentrated. Uh, investment in China in the automotive sector. So uh, these sectors depend very much on the Chinese market. Um, And therefore, of course, that puts some limits on the kind of action European governments in general and the German government in particular Mm -hmm. would dare to take if there's a reason for acting because uh, China violates human rights or something else on which fundamentally, the U.S. and Europe? Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we have observed in the last, you know, we're recording on, what is it? I think it's uh, April 21st. Um, So we are about two months into the Russian war on Ukraine. And and so one of the important contextual factors is the recognition of a certain asymmetric vulnerability, um, which had arisen in Europe um, uh, over the years, in particular in its energy relationship with, uh, with Russia, um, and, and that that constrains Europe in, in some particular ways in using the full range of its economic and political instruments to try to deter Russian aggression uh, or to bring it to a halt as quickly as possible. Do you see a similar um, set of circumstances when you look at the European,
1: and also, by the way, American, relationships with China? I think it is different. And of course, here the question very much becomes, do you think about the worst case, basically China attacking Taiwan? Right. Or do you think of, uh, let's say, more normal circumstances, there might be pressures, uh, there might be incidents, right? But not a full-scale invasion. Um, so I would say that uh, there are certain limits uh, to, let's say, the European uh, propensity to take strong action on Chinese on Chinese trade, uh, essentially. But I think in the worst case, that would be overcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So the idea in Europe would still be that uh, not that one can change uh, China through uh, through uh, trade, but uh, that still intensive trade links create a web of interests which might be an additional factor in constraining Chinese aggressiveness.
0: Right. Right.
1: That's a hope. Nobody can say whether it will actually work or not. And and
0: and in some you know implicit in that assessment is a judgment that, that the, in this case, China would have as much or more to lose from an interrupting that economic relationship with Europe um, as Europe would have at stake. Um, I, it seems to me that over the, that was always a fundamental assumption in let's say the German economic relationship with Russia, which may have been true 20 or 30 years ago. But over the course of time, the Russian state through the accumulation of foreign currency reserves and and other measures tried to insulate itself from that mutual vulnerability. Um, Do you think the Chinese uh, state would be doing, uh, might achieve a similar insulation?
1: Okay, I would actually disagree that the Russians have been able to isolate themselves. Okay, right. In the very short run, uh, of course, uh, they have the advantage. Uh, in the medium to long run, uh, they lose very much more than Europe does.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But that's okay, still to be played out. We are still under the depression of the first month, ultra-high gas prices. But once uh, the, the, the new uh, uh, system of production and distribution of gas, uh, mm-hmm. which will not involve Russia, uh, is established, then Russia will find itself in a very weak position, in my view. Mm-hmm. Okay? But that's to be seen still. Um, on China, I think this is a, a natural evolution. For China, access to European markets, European technology, was very important 10 years ago. Yeah, It is still nice to have today. Uh, more still, let's say, still important. In 10 years, it will be just be nice to have because China will become uh, will be, <clears throat> become much more technologically advanced. So it will not rely anymore on our technologies and it will be a bigger economies so or trade will naturally play a smaller role in its own economy. So our leverage on China naturally diminishes over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And so does that mean that you don't think China is looking at the pretty vigorous response by the US and the EU and others to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and saying, okay, um, you know, might need to reconsider some of the most forceful actions we might take. You know, in other words, is there any deterrent, preemptive deterrent effect on China from how the, the West has reacted to no, Russia's invasion? There,
1: there will still be a strong uh, preemptive and deterrent effect, but it will decline over time, right? It's always a question, not zero or nothing, or nothing mm-hmm. right? Zero or full. It's just a question of uh, the relative importance which in my view, we'll decline over it.
2: And, and when we look at the transatlantic angle here, what do you think, um, given what you've said, uh, what do you think is are the most promising areas for, for the U.S. and Germany and the EU to cooperate? You, and, for, and more specifically, you know, we have the second meeting of the U.S. EU Trade and Technology Council coming up next month. What, what do you think should be on
1: that agenda? What can we reasonably hope for? I think it is uh, very useful to coordinate, at least uh, to talk about both sides on what can be done. I'm afraid that in many areas, the EU will not be able actually to act because there are very few levers which the, the EU can use at the European level, right? We have the famous Chips Act in Europe, but if you look closer, there's very little European money in there Right, and the official hope is that they can leverage European funds ten to one with national funds. Right, so in the end, it comes back down to, to member states. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is useful, but one, one should not expect from this a united front against China. I think that is unlikely to materialize.
2: Sure. What about? Um things that maybe don't involve as much money, uh, which, but, but, but which involve aligning um, US and EU approaches like say export control policies or inward and outward investment screening policies. Do, do, do you think those could have some uh, it, it could play a useful role?
1: I think uh, those policies might be easier to align, but I think their effectiveness is very limited or the importance is very limited. Um, my impression is that uh, the danger coming from Chinese investment in Europe is negligible. Right? There we have a few cases where they buy ports, but ports are under the control of the local national authorities. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a piece of paper saying I'm one hundred percent owner of the port, right? It's the national authorities that tell you what to do with it. Uh, the tra- national trade unions, <laughs> which work or not, don't work. So I'm very relaxed for the time being about Chinese investment uh, in Europe. And what what about outward investment?
2: Do you think that there should be limitations on outward European or US investment into China because that could alter the sort of economic balance of power?
1: Um, There, I think uh, there's a difference. Europe has very little uh, technology, (laughs) which the Chinese don't already have, right? Mm -hmm. To limit outward European investment in medium tech sectors, I don't see what the importance of that is. Uh, The US, of course, has an entire array of areas where sensitive technology, which might be important for the military also, you would not like to get into Chinese hands, uh, but that's different. Mm -hmm.
2: There's been a new government in Germany for the last uh, four or four months or so. And very recently, since the invasion of Ukraine, the Chancellor Schultz has spoken about, its about a watershed moment. Um, this is, of course, in, in response to Russia's actions. But how much do you think that could also um, change Germany's approach to China? And how much? What, what, what would you expect for Germany's contribution to transatlantic cooperation on, on dealing with the kind of uh, economic challenge that China
1: presents? There's a vague recognition that, okay, dictatorial regimes, they can provide you with nasty surprises, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to be prepared. But I don't think uh, in Germany, the China angle has the same relative weight as it has here, right? It is, okay, something which we have to think about in the future, right? There's something, might be something cooking there Mm -hmm. and our enterprises should be a bit, perhaps uh, watch out a bit more but I don't think that fundamentally it, would, let me say, it might change the political outlook on China, right? In Berlin and in Brussels. But from there to say, actual Berlin or Brussels will use actual instruments to deter trade or investment. I think we are very part from it. So the change
2: you think, will at least in the short term, will be more in the narratives we use, that are one. used,
1: as well, opposed to actually the actual one, yeah,
2: yeah. tools that are that are developed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and as a practical matter, the European
0: Union has <clears throat> certainly has no instruments to block outward
1: investment, and it has no Section three hundred something <laughs> like three hundred one, three hundred one, <laughs> right? This would be against the very nature of the EU to just imposing electoral tariffs, just impossible. Mm
0: -hmm. And and I wanna come back uh, to to the point you made earlier because you you are based in Brussels, you've advised the European parliament in the past, as well as some member state uh, governments. And to what degree do you see events happening in Europe, that is Russia, uh, war on Ukraine, um, concern about China and maybe other factors as a driver of greater concentration of of power, creation of new instruments at the European level. We've also seen this in recent years with the idea of a a European defense fund, which in a similar way to what you were describing would also leverage um, multinational cooperation uh, in Mm -hmm. Europe. Uh, Do you see these, um, these kinds of ideas getting a decisive, impulse uh, momentum from
1: uh, uh, from the situation we're in now? I would say, yes, strong momentum, but no immediate breakthrough. Okay. So, uh, I mean, things will be stronger in certain directions, the defense fund perhaps a little bit bigger, uh, there will be perhaps more coordination among member states, um, but I don't expect a fundamental change uh, Let's say with respect to the fact that armed forces are national and remain national, of course, subject to NATO, right? Mm -hmm. But this is not uh, something not for the EU. As a matter of fact, this crisis has uh, reinforced the centrality of NATO uh, in terms of security. Uh, So uh, for the time being, it seems to be, okay, security, NATO, and the EU, please deal with whatever... uh, money, and and other
2: matters. (laughs) Um, You know, in that context, um, the EU recently agreed uh, an anti-coercion instrument, which is not yet in effect, but it it will be in the next year or so. Um, And its aim is to provide the EU with a new trade tool, we could say, to respond to... um, events like China's decision to uh, block trade with Lithuania after it uh, gave the permission to the Taiwanese government to open a, uh, or to rename its uh, representative office there. Um, Don't you see that as, to a certain degree, giving the EU some power in foreign policy? And whether you do or not, is that the kind of thing that the US and the EU ought to try to do together?
1: That's a small step. I don't think it will really change things fundamentally. And you will see that the EU will always be very cautious in applying it. And also this is not a one man decision, push the button, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's always something that has to be supported by the major member states. They have interests uh, in China. And it's basically, again, it's anti-China. Yes. Who else would coerce the European Union Except the United sure. States, <laughs> right? Uh, so, uh, and there, um, I think you will find Europeans always somewhat uncomfortable to create a mechanism which is basically pointed at one particular power.
0: Although, as you say, in principle, it could be used against the United States if the U.S. Uh, decided Let to. Me,
1: if one is honest, I think some of some people in Europe had that in mind.
0: Yes. <laughs> Um, at the, even if that is extremely unlikely given the, the close relations between the U.S. And, uh, and, and the European Union member states and indeed the European Union as, a, as an institution. Um, so you mentioned, uh, Daniel, your, your view that we should not seek to have a united front uh, against uh, China. And that has, in one, on the one hand, it has to do with the fact that our, um, our interests and our engagements with China are different and therefore our responses should be. But I think that I, I, I sense perhaps also a, a political assessment in there as well. That is because we cannot achieve a
1: united front against
0: China, we shouldn't try to do something and fail at it.
1: That is also a consideration. I mean, My main concern is that also we don't want to appear at least also to the rest of the world. Say the non-Chinese rest of the world are saying, "We are here to keep China down." I mean, after all, uh, in most whatever confrontations, uh, the guy who appears more reasonable mm-hmm. usually has uh, more allies, and that counts. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially vis-a-vis China, which is as big as we are, more or less, depending what you've seen. By me, uh, we, right? Yes. Um, so, to have the rest of the world, let's say India and others, right, on our side would be, would be very important, or not against us, at least. And therefore, uh, I've, I would say it's very important that we, we give a signal which could be uh, we have different values. And therefore, we hesitate to engage too deeply economically with China. We hesitate to become dependent on China. I think that is something that everybody will understand. Mm -hmm. But to give the impression, okay, now we gang up together to keep China down, uh, that A, I think many Europeans would not like to do. Uh, B, I think uh, it would be counterproductive in the sense that uh, it would make the Chinese of course more hostile and we don't know whether they would be hostile anyway, but still it would reinforce this tendency in China but most importantly it would deprive us of important allies in the rest of the world
2: if, if we look at that from a trade policy perspective you know of course the, the one the big institution where where China and the US and the EU EU and all sorts of other countries that, that are are neither sort of lined up or, or, you know not neither that aren't lined up with either either one of those in, um, where you find all of them is the World Trade Organization, of course, right? Um, which has been a bit stymied uh, in, in, in its negotiating function, also in its dispute resolution function. Um, if, you're, if one is concerned about not looking like you're ganging up against China, does that mean that if you're in Washington or in Brussels, that the main focus of trade policy ought to be the WTO reviving the WTO, maybe reforming it, you know, because if you do too much outside of the WTO, it it can have that flavor of ganging up against China.
1: For me, the WTO is a lost cause. (laughs) In the sense of reform of the WTO, I think is extremely difficult. Um, The interests are too divergent and you have to carry everybody along. Um, And also it is... I I know the trade rules are more observed in abeyance than, (laughs) right? But this is actually very limited, right? Apart from the uh, trump China tariffs and the Chinese retaliation, we haven't seen a lot. So there's no big appetite anywhere in the world for a trade war, right? Um, Not among the small countries, of course, obviously, uh, not even for China, right? They can live with with the present system. Um, certainly not on the European side. And therefore, I would say uh, the present non-system <laughs> is still working because few have a, uh, an interest really to uh, to really wreck it totally. And uh, the few things where we can make some marginal improvements, uh, I think we have to do on what's called a plurilateral uh Route meaning, we have to have a coalition of the willing.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're not saying the WTO is
1: dead. You're saying WTO
0: reform is dead. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure we're uh, we, we 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 get that headline right. Um, and and so you know we're sitting here. And by the way, we were very glad for the first time in a long time to be recording this podcast in person. Um, and and we are sitting here on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, right next to the headquarters of the Peterson Institute, um, uh, the president of which Adam Posen had a recent uh, article about, uh, well, basically the end of globalization or globalization as, as we've known it. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to critique his argument, but what, how do you see the, the global trading and economic system shifting um, as a result of the pressures, political and economic,
1: uh, that uh, that we are under? If you take away some of the hype over the last whatever 10 years, then I think indications are will go on more or less as before. Right? No big globalization wave, additionally, no big retreat. Um, But uh, I think uh, most of the global trading powers have an interest in just letting the system run along. Mm -hmm. Right? not greatly improved, uh, no new big steps forward, but also no big steps uh, backwards and the, uh, let's say, the economic incentives uh, to specialize uh, in different areas for different countries, they remain as before. And therefore, I'm quite happy with with the present way that things work in practice, even though in theory, <laughs> they are not. Well, to, you know,
0: we started off by talking about, um, uh, well, not at the very start, but you, you made the point in, in contradicting uh, me, and I think it was a valid point, that if we look at the ways in which Europe is going to change its dependence um, and its energy relationship with Russia, um, I think it's fair to say that's a quite far-reaching consequence of, of this of this war. Now, maybe that will be an exception um, rather than a rule, but it, it seems to me that that is, um, you, know, you know, changing in the span of one or two years. Um, what has been one of the most intense energy relationships for decades um, is, is a pretty remarkable consequence of, of this. But, situation.
1: but except for gas, of very little practical importance.
0: Because oil is roughly fungible. And oil can is roughly be
1: fungible, mm-hmm. coal is certainly fungible. It's never 100% fungible, right? A pipeline has different uh, transportation costs than a tanker, right? Yeah. But roughly fungible, uh, and gas, uh, is, of course, has a big cost in making it fungible via LNG. But once you have sustained that cost, it will remain. This is completely different from the trade integration between uh, uh, Europe uh, and China. Right? Let me perhaps make one parenthesis here. Part of this fungibility also applies to uh, um, U.S.-China trade. The soybeans. Mm-hmm. Okay. If the Chinese buy more soybeans, then they buy less from uh, Brazil, and Brazil sends it somewhere else. Yeah. Right. In 2020, the Chinese had a uh, tariff on. American LNG and the share of uh, US uh, LNG in Chinese market went to zero immediately,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And then one year later, they took it off, right? Because <laughs> it didn't really make sense for the Chinese, right? It didn't really, the impact was really zero because they just got there. So, to say that for, for Europe and in trade with the US, of course, by the way, the US remains a much more important market for Europe than for than China, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, China is very different, right? And the nature of the European investment in China is very different. Now, in terms of going forward, I think to keep in mind is that the weight of the European economy in the global economy will go down. And it is likely that the European economy will become even more open, mm-hmm. right? More trade exports and imports, Yeah, right? Of which China by its very natural growth will occupy an increasing shape, right? As I said, today, the US is much more important still as an export market. In five to 10 years, it would be different. <clears throat> that is unavoidable. The, the, the Europe is in the process of becoming uh, a small open economy, as we call it, economists call it. Yeah. Right? If I may add one thing, something which Adam Posen has, uh, has actually remarked, that the US, Is an outlier in a certain sense. It is the the one country in the world which is very little, Mm -hmm. right? Um, In economic size, Europe and the US are not that different in terms of their openness and their dependence on trade, especially exports, they're very different. And, uh, And I think that is going to remain likely and the dependence of Europe on trade will increase so it will be less and less inclined to use trade as a market.
2: So does that mean you don't think governments, US, US, uh, German, European governments should try to nudge that trade in one direction or another so that it, you know, uh, they trade with, quote unquote, friendly countries more and do less trade with less friendly countries because uh, you want to not decouple but you want to manage dependency.
1: Actually, I have looked at the trade patterns of European countries and over the last 20 years, the share of uh, non-democratic economies yes. has doubled.
0: Ah, in European Union trade.
1: Yeah, in European Union trade. right? And actually, of our um, energy imports, 90%. Mm-hmm. Right? We have the choice between <laughs> the devil and I don't know what else. Right? between Saudi Arabia or Russia. It's not, in terms of human rights, it's not much of a difference. Um, so that is just a fact, uh, little we can we can do. Now the question is, can we change that? And I think uh, a good way to start answering that question is to look at the impact of the Trump tariffs on US-China trade, very limited. And they had 25% or 20% tariffs. So, so you can imagine what kind of tariffs you would need to have, to have really not only nudge, right? But really have an impact, let's say to shift, let's say 10 percentage points of trade from one region to another, that would be huge.
0: I wanna pick up on one, I think you said it it, it, at the very end of one of of the sentences, but, you were saying that the European Union will become a more open economy, um, whether small really applies to uh, a, you know, a block of 460 million people, we'll leave that aside. But, and that as a result, it would be less likely, I think you said, to use um, trade instruments as a tool of foreign policy. So Can you say more about that? Because in a way, what we've seen in recent years, not only from the United States, but also from the European Union, is a development of the tools that are necessary in order to try to amplify or replace perhaps more difficult security um, tools that uh, that we're familiar with.
1: Okay. There, this trend which you mentioned exists, but that's because basically at the EU, we go from the national level. Mm-hmm. which are really small <laughs> economies to the EU level, which is a little bit less small and a little it's bit less... It's pretty big, <laughs> all, all things considered, <laughs> right? right? Okay, we are talking about 12% of global GDP. Right? Just, mm-hmm. um, so I think uh, that, that, that you have to keep in mind. right? Now, in some previous analysis, I've just uh, made the following, say, categorization of countries. Um, you have the leaders, the followers, and then let's say the really small open economies, just the Nash followers I call it, right? Okay, and it's an yes. economic term, right? Yes. People countries who take the world as given and don't seek to influence it. The leaders are usually countries which are big, of course, um, which by their size. Uh, are uh, responsible for a significant share of global trade, comma, but for them trade is marginal for the economy. So these countries can either be generous, like the U.S. after the uh, the war, right? Say we are open to everybody anyway. It's trade is five percent of GDP, so what can happen? Yeah, and they can also use trade as a weapon, right? If I, whatever, if you, Cuba, don't do what I want, right? We slap an embargo on you because anyway, right? Um, So we have to be big and relatively closed. Mm. Uh, The uh, EU uh, is big, let's say, and 20 years ago was also relatively close, Mm -hmm. but for some reason which we do not understand very well, it has become much, much more open, much more than the US. Mm -hmm. And there, the calculus is different. To use trade as weapon has a big impact on the economy. You're talking then about millions of jobs potentially. Right. Uh, so therefore, I call them followers. So if others lead, they they follow and say, okay, yes, we are all for for rules and uh, open trading system. But they're not the guys who will be out there in the market.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Is one of the reasons the EU has become a more open economy that it has four or five times as many bilateral free trade agreements as the US does?
1: The empirical evidence is that they have actually very little impact, these trade agreements. Okay. Um, I know that, and actually, the EU has a higher average tariff than the United States. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The difference is minor, right? You're talking yeah. about uh, whatever, 3.5 versus 5, or depending on how you measure them. So it is very difficult to say. One reason might be that uh, the EU has uh, a stronger industrial sector. And another one important reason is actually uh, that the EU needs to pay for its imports of raw materials. Mm -hmm. So if you have an economy Mm -hmm. which has import every year, four to 5% of GDP in terms of energy and raw materials, you have to have the same exports to pay for them. The US doesn't have to pay that. Mm -hmm. So this kind of exporting to pay for your living, so to speak, the US doesn't need to do, right? And therefore, for the US already, for that reason, you can have a much uh, smaller trade to GDP ratio. And also, of course, a smaller manufacturing sector. Yeah. Let's see. Okay.
0: Well, we clearly have a, a lot of work ahead of us uh, as a transatlantic uh, community um, addressing challenges that affect us in some cases differently um, more harshly in one case than in another, and trying to forge the right political um, understanding to sustain uh, that and to bridge any of the misunderstandings that arise. So uh, Daniel Gross, I want to thank you for helping us understand uh, better um, the dynamics in Europe, um, in the global economy, uh, and in particular as the United States and Europe Grapple with their approaches to China.
1: Many thanks. It was my pleasure. And I think you have felt that Europe is committed to the transatlantic relationship. But uh, sometimes it's not easy to do that in practice. Yeah.
0: Well, and I also want to thank uh, you know, our partners at the Hans Seidel Foundation for making the workshop possible that we've uh, uh, held, held today. Uh, we always look forward to working with them. And uh, we look forward to having all of you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode.
2: Auf